if we can accept the fact that Christianity is complex and that we really dislike when people label us or try to oversimplify who we are or to make us all sound or look the same, then I think we can begin by returning that favor to other systems of faith and accepting that there's diversity there. So I'm always seeking those good-willed people in another faith and I want to partner with them for the benefit of our society. And I believe this is what Jesus is, invites us to do. My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai Equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve. On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as Global Ambassador and Ministry Director for Langham. Today, we pick up with part two of Chris's conversation with Martin Akkad, a theological leader in Lebanon who received his PhD training with support from Langham. He's taught at Arab Baptist Theological Seminary in Beirut, where he founded and directs the Institute of Middle East Studies. Martin is a sought-off speaker, thinker, and writer on Islam, Middle Eastern Christianity, and Christian-Muslim relations. Martin and Chris pick up their talk with thoughts on overcoming misconceptions Christians and Muslims may have toward one another. Martin shares some wise words for those who may be hesitant about any kind of Christian-Muslim partnership. Plus, you'll learn about the groundbreaking Bible commentary project for Muslim background believers he is leading. I hope you enjoy. You are very much committed to and involved in peace building, peacemaking between Christians and Muslims. Presumably one of the obstacles to that is false perceptions that each has of the other. Uh, and I wonder whether, in what ways can you help Christians, including Christians who are listening to this podcast, uh, to overcome prejudices or misunderstandings or myths and skewed views of Islam that would be helpful? Yeah, I think one of the things that's really helpful is to, is to do a bit of self-reflection and to uh, think, you know, uh, to what extent can we put uh, a large group of Christians in the same box? Um, so uh, recognizing the diversity of religious people within a religious system is extremely important. Uh, and that's one of the things I really work hard on helping uh, people discover, the diversity that exists within Islam. Um, another uh, 
another element is recognizing the complexity of Islam. And so um, uh, religions, at least the monotheistic religions, uh, have at the center of their belief a text, scripture. And to realize that uh, a text um, is lived out through a process of interpretation. Um, so the way we understand, the way we preach about the text is crucial and has crucial implications on the way that the religion is lived out. And so this is why you see uh, you know, Christians who uh, historically were willing to carry a sword and a cross banner and go and fight in the name of Christ. Whereas today, this feels like an aberration, mm. yet perhaps not so much an aberration because we're willing to support uh, uh, political systems, even if they are violent or oppressive. So mm. we have to ask ourselves, uh, you know, it's easy to judge others, but aren't we also uh, skewing our interpretations of the text to fit our pragmatic uh, goals? It's the same with Islam. And I've been saddened, for instance, to hear quite often since uh, the emergence of Daesh or ISIS in Syria in the summer of 2014, hearing people within our churches saying, finally, Islam has shown its true face. Hmm. Well, there's nothing more... Uh, generalistic, generalizing or uh, prejudiced or uh, then a statement like that. Uh, you know, uh, yes, uh, Daesh was inspired by certain texts in the Quran and certain texts in the tradition, but always through a particular interpretation. And we have to remember as Arab Christians that most of our neighbors who are Muslims, and I live in a majority part of Beirut, uh, are not out there uh, waiting for an opportunity to slit our throats. Mm -hmm. They are hospitable neighbors, they're kind, they visit us, they invite us, they, uh, their children are friends with my children. And, and so is, is, is Daesh true Islam and my neighbor bad Islam? No. Uh, it, they are various manifestations of Islam deriving from di diverse ways of reading, of interpreting a text. Now, mm. of course, this could take us into all sorts of other conversations about what is this, the core message of the scripture or that. But at the most, more important for me uh, with the small uh, short time we have is to emphasize Islam's diversity Islam's complexity, and therefore, this becomes the foundation of our engagement with Muslims uh, and getting away from prejudice, allowing Muslims to be Muslims uh, in the way that they choose to, rather than me thinking if they're nice people, then they're not true Muslims simply because of my presuppositions. Uh, and that takes us a long way into engaging with Muslims far more positively. Yeah. And you know, maybe it's more difficult to speak like this to uh, you know, a general audience. But if we can uh, accept the fact that Christianity is complex and that we really dislike when people label us or uh, try to oversimplify who we are or to make us all sound or look the same, 
then I think we can uh, begin by returning that favor to other systems of faith and accepting that there's diversity there. So I'm always seeking uh, those uh, good-willed people in another faith, and I want to partner with them for the benefit of our society. Mm. And I believe this is what Jesus is, invites us to do. And as I do that, I manifest uh, uh, Christ, his ways, his values, his ethic, his lifestyle, his teaching, and mm. the essence of who he was. And, uh, that, and that is very powerful. Yeah. That, that's actually quite a, uh, an important point, isn't it? What you just said, that uh, in doing peace building and obedience to the command of Jesus, or at least the, the beatitude of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, you are, in fact, seeking to embody something of Christ himself. Now, that, that does raise the question that there are those who, who are very suspicious of any kind of dialogue or something like the Institute of Middle East Studies, you know, where you are talking with and working with Muslims, and they say, well, doesn't it all end up just saying, well, we're all the same, really, um, and all you're doing is trying to sort of get some kind of a common mishmash in which we're all good people, we all believe the same thing, and we all love one another. Uh, I mean, how do you answer that kind of perception of the work that you do? I, I think it's a perception that comes from uh, people who maybe have never really engaged in dialogue. And But let me give them another analogy. And if they're married, let them think about their marriage. Uh, you know, you're, when you interact with a spouse, um, you, it doesn't help to assume that the other is exactly the same as you. In fact, the more you understand them and recognize them as separate individuals who have their own dignity and value as human persons, the more your, uh, your marriage relationship is likely to be healthy. Uh, and it's the same in dialogue. The worst type of dialogue is the one that claims there are no differences. And it usually doesn't last long and, and is not really significant for anyone. And in fact, Muslims are the last to have a desire to engage in this because Islam is a very missionary religion. So mm. what, what good is it to tell them you're exactly like me? Now they mm. cannot invite you to become Muslim anymore. So what we need, uh, <laughs> on the contrary, the most uh, uh, fruitful, uh, productive, uh, uh, interesting type of uh, dialogue engagement is where we recognize our differences, where we are not afraid to tackle sensitive, difficult issues. You know, um, I've rarely participated in uh, official interfaith dialogue where I haven't, for instance, brought up the issue of, uh, of the perse persecuting uh, uh, non-Muslims because of their faith. And of course, officially, Islam rejects that. Uh, you know, they don't accept that uh, religion would be imposed. You know, and one of the main verses in the Quran there is that there is no compulsion in religion. And so it's absurd that Islam actually calls for the killing of the, uh, what they call the apostate. Unfortunately, uh, the uh, Islamic law is quite unanimous about that throughout history, that those who reject Islam should be killed. It's called the law of apostasy. And so, but instead of attacking my Muslim uh, 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 you know, the, the dialogue partner, 
uh, I tell them, well, help me to understand uh, how do you make sense of the tension between the Quranic call that there is no compulsion in religion in one hand, and on the other hand, the unanimous uh, jurisprudence about the killing of the apostate. And I allow them to help me understand that. And in the process, it forces them to rethink that uh, because it is an issue. Uh, and uh, it is a problem that Islam has to uh, come to terms with uh, the more Islam becomes a global reality and a reality in the West and, uh, and has to um, and wants to attract Westerners for whom uh, freedom of conscience and, uh, uh, is, uh, is a very central value and a top value. And Muslims, uh, not surprisingly, are able to adapt very well to this. And they have, I've heard some very good responses to this question because I was not trying to corner them with a question like that. I was really trying to understand. Hmm. So when we come into dialogue with a desire to understand, it's a mutually enriching conversation. And then as I learn, they also uh, are much more open to hearing uh, about the uniqueness of what Christ brings into individual life, into the life of community, into the life of society, and uh, the political system at large. Mm. And this you. is the sort of fruitful dialogue that I yeah. It's a fruitful dialogue because it's a fruitful dialogue because it's based on integrity, because uh, both sides are being honest and truthful to what is at the very core of their identity and their beliefs. Uh, and it's only then that, that that someone can be helped, if the Lord wills, to be persuaded uh, one way or another, rather than just being assumed that somehow uh, they're wrong. I wonder if we could move on to another another question. One this of the things, if you yeah. don't mind, that this does not exclude the validity of personal evangelism, and so this is not a substitute for it. And, but some people are particularly gifted at one-on-one -on -one evangelism and witness. And I think what, what they do, so long as they do it respectfully, is, uh, is very important and wonderful. And I support this and I, I challenge people in dialogue, Muslim partners, to allow for this sort of religious expression as well. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, thank you. I, I think that's an important point to make, that commitment to dialogue with integrity does not exclude evangelism with integrity. They, they, they are all dimensions of an authentic Christian mission. Yes, absolutely. Let's turn to an issue. You have talked about how Christians in Lebanon suffer from a minority complex. And that's an interesting expression because it's also found, I think, uh, among Christians in the West. In some cases, it's it's obviously genuinely true because Christians are in a minority. Or even among uh, those who would say that, to some degree, Christianity or Christian civilization as such, not necessarily just Christian believers, are in a minority and they feel there for some sense of a, almost a victim mentality. And I wonder whether you could speak about that and to how the way you seek to address that in the Lebanese context might have something to say to Christians in the West who feel that and what are the dangers of it uh, and, and what responses do we need to make from a biblical point of view? Yeah. 
that's a great question because it's, I think, increasingly a global reality, as you said, and so we need to address it within the church. This, first of all, uh, uh, the fallacy that uh, we are a minority, I want to address that, but second also, uh, the fallacy that it's a problem to be, uh, to be small. Yes. Uh, we live in a culture of consumerism where, where big is better and more is better and large is what we want. Uh, well, first of all, I, I've been so disturbed by the sense of uh, being referred to as a Christian minority in my context because uh, when someone calls me uh, that I'm a, a minority, a religious minority, that uh, that makes me uh, feel small, it makes me feel I don't belong, and it makes me feel I'm insignificant, and it makes me feel like I want to run away, and it makes me feel like I want to be defended from the outside, and there's nothing more unhealthy than living a life with those feelings. So I have come to, uh, a, a dis to make a distinction between uh, the reality, the objective, fact that you may be a numerical minority. So I'm, I'm happy to be called uh, as an Arab Christian as belonging to a numerical religious minority. Okay. But that's where it stops. And that's a question of demographics. Uh, because anything beyond that is uh, leads to a process which I refer to as a process of minoritization. And that is not a noun, that is a verb. And when someone minoritizes me, they are trying to, it's, it's uh, in the same uh, semantic field perhaps as, uh, as colonization, as, uh, 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 and it's a process of control. Uh, it's you are placed in this category of a minority so that so that someone who is in the demographic majority can control you can uh, uh, force you to uh, to be loyal to them uh, now what you'll realize is that the process of minoritization is not only applied to numerical minorities and so, for instance, in a dictatorial system, and often dictators are part of the minority population, and they've had to become dictators in order to maintain themselves in power. And we have many examples of those whose heads have fallen during the Arab Spring. So uh, they have minoritized demographic majorities. <laughs> and essentially, they've said, if you do not abide by my uh, way of doing things by my ideology, then you will be persecuted and you are not part of the dominant group. So you can be a minority, a numerical minority in a dominant position, or you can be a demographic majority in a dominated position. Mm -hmm. So then majority minority becomes meaningless unless it is qualified. And so as, a, as an Arab Christian, I am part of a demographic religious minority, but I am also part of a majority of people of faith in this country of Lebanon that have a desire to live together and, to, and who reject religious extremism 
and want to work for the common good of a country and a society. Here we have found something that unites us that is bigger, uh, more powerful value than simply uh, sectarian affiliation. And this is what I think we need to do as Arab Christians is to seek out and ally ourselves with others who share our faith values, even if they are from another religion. And faith values, uh, we shouldn't confuse faith values with, you know, uh, the question of soteriology. If I say that we have shared values with someone from another faith, it doesn't mean I'm not making a statement about, you know, everyone is saved and everyone is good sure. and everyone is the same. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm saying that from a sociological perspective and even from a political perspective, we can work together uh, towards the common good, even if we are not part of the same religious group. Mm -hmm. And then we become a majority and we can push uh, extremists who use faith for uh, violent purposes into the margins. Um, the other question is more theological. The question of, uh, is it really bad to be small? Uh, and I think that uh, we find, in particularly, in particularly in the parables of Jesus, and Jesus' teaching and his use of parables, uh, some uh, very interesting symbols that he uses that uh, reflect that small is good. And so he uses uh, the image of the salt, of the light, uh, of the uh, leaven, uh, and... Uh, um, the mustard seed. Uh, the mustard seed. Mm -hmm. And all of these are very positive, um, very positive metaphors in, uh, in the Gospels. And you don't want to have too much salt in a meal nothing worse than that. You don't want to have a light flashed in your face. You don't want to have, um, uh, you know, too much uh, leaven in bread because it goes out of control. Uh, and so these, uh, these uh, images are used to say that we, in fact, as children of the kingdom, are called to be effective in our smallness. And if we, when we are small, it helps us to remain uh, humble. It helps us not to politicize religion. And there are countries in the West where Christianity has become so, so much the majority demographically that the church has started to think that it's okay to, uh, to become a dominant political party or, uh, or to, to, it's okay to dictate uh, morality to all of society and to marginalize or ostracize those who disagree with us. And I think this is a real problem uh, for children of the kingdom who are called to uh, be a small mustard seed, to call, to be, to be uh, pressed into the earth, to die in order to grow back into a small plant and then a small tree and then a, a large tree whose branches uh, are become welcoming and hospitable to all the diversity of the birds of the air. Uh, an amazing image that mm. Jesus gives us there. And it's an image of hospitality. It's an image of invitation. It's an image of inclusion. And mm. we are lacking 
many of these characteristics in the church today. I think part of what you're saying is that when the church gets tempted into a Christendom mentality, that somehow the best way to save the world is to rule the world, then we nearly always go wrong uh, and get it wrong. And and that mentality is still around today, isn't it, in, in some places where Christians seek political power as if that were the only way that they can have an influence in society or even benefit in society. So I think those are very, very sobering thoughts. And I think it's quite anti-biblical, anti-Christly, in order not to say Christian. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, I just missed that point, Martin. What did you say? I'm saying uh, this leads to anti-Christ's expressions of the church and unbiblical expressions in the church. Indeed, and that is very serious. I wonder if we could turn uh, towards our close to to two areas. One uh, is your writing. Now, we can't talk about all of that because you're prolific, but I know that one of the things you've been working on together with others is a large Muslim background Bible commentary project. And I wonder whether you could tell us a bit about that and what are its aims and, and what are you hoping to achieve through the Muslim background Bible commentary project? Yes, or or a Muslim... uh, a biblical commentary series for Muslim context. Right. Uh, so, yeah, a, a commentary series that takes seriously uh, the the realities of a Muslim context for which it is written. You know, we often take for granted, and I say we here because of my mixed cultural background. So, as Westerners, <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, me, uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. The Western church often takes for granted that uh, theology uh, written in the West is mainstream, is standard. This is what theology should look like. Right? Uh, the reality is uh, every theology is de- develops within a very specific context. It's what uh, we might, um, um, you know, very uh, knowledgeably call hermeneutics. Um, but... Uh, the the context in which a theology is developed has a, a huge influence on the language that is used and on the uh, the way that theology is expressed. And so, uh, you know, a theologian today uh, writing in um, in Norway or uh, I don't know in Belgium uh, is going to uh, be writing consciously or subconsciously for a postmodern audience. They are going to speak about perhaps uh, a sense of hopelessness. They are going to speak to, um, uh, to uh, uh, materialism. They are going to speak to consumerism. They are going to speak to individualism and the feeling of loneliness. Um, um, if a theologian is writing in America, well, it depends probably if, they're, if they live somewhere in the south, they're going to write in a particular way, if they're on the east coast or maybe uh, differently. If, if I'm writing in, in Tanzania, I'm going to be writing also differently. So the reality in which it, I am in uh, uh, has an impact in, uh, for the way that I write theology, or at least it should have, and that's yeah. healthy. Yeah. The problem with with us as theologians from the majority world who have been trained in Western theological uh, mindset, 
uh, and uh, yet live in the non-Western world is that uh, our language tends to be uh, a bit of a, an imitation of, uh, of the language of the books we have read. Um, the questions that theologians are answering when they write theology is what we might refer to as hermeneutical questions. So they're the, the questions of the context. They're the rhetorical questions that people in society around them are asking. And so when we're doing theology, we're constantly answering those questions. And so this uh, Bible project, this Bible commentary project is, is trying to be more uh, more intentional about asking itself, what are the questions that our context is asking? And since our context is majority Muslims, what are Muslims asking about our text? When you start asking this question, you're opening fascinating worlds. First of all, the world of intertextuality in the Quran, refers to the Bible constantly. It borrows language that you find in the Bible. So what do you make of that use of a scripture that emerged 600 years later that makes use of your scripture? Do you ignore it completely as you start writing about uh, a text in your scripture? Or during hundreds of years, Muslims uh, from beginning in the eighth century begin to engage with Christians. And that was, you know, we go back to where we started. This was my area of PhD research. So Muslim scholars have used the text of the Bible in their theological discourse and in their engagement with Christians. I cannot, as an Arab Christian, ignore uh, this uh, the history of the text of the Bible uh, within the Muslim tradition when I come to the interpretation of my text. That would be absurd and indeed foolish because the text has a history that I would be ignoring completely. I need to ask what are Muslims in my, my neighbors, in my neighborhood, what questions do they have about my faith? What questions do they have about the biblical text? And take all of these into consideration. Now, just a little caveat because the risk could be that if I am too consciously addressing those hermeneutical questions, I will end up with an apologetic text where I am constantly defending my, my doctrines or my texts against uh, what I perceive as being the questioning or the attacks that Muslims uh, have leveled at my text. So I'm not speaking here about an apologetic commentary, but what we're trying to do is to be conscious of those hermeneutical questions and to address them, but in a constructive way and indirectly as we develop our theological discourse and our exegesis to be conscious, very conscious of those questions in the background that are the motivation for uh, the process of interpretation that we are carrying out. And so this commentary series is emerging in different regions of the, of the world where uh, Islam is a, a very a strong reality uh, in different languages, uh, in Asia, in Africa, mm -hmm. in the MENA region. Um, and uh, hopefully will be a rich resource both for the church in the majority world, but also increasingly for the church in the West that is in its early stages of day-to-day -day engagement with Muslim realities.
Yes, indeed. That's exactly right. Uh, the uh, the issue of relating to Muslims is not just something that's happening in the Middle East or in Asia. Uh, it's very much happening in, in Western countries. And to have resources to help us to see how the Bible is read and perceived and the questions that arise from Muslim neighbors will be a hugely helpful resource. So it's an international project. Uh, and I understand that Langham Literature is uh, connected with this in partnership with your team. Uh, and uh, and we look forward to seeing uh, the good fruit of that. I want to come finally to something which you wrote to me only yesterday as we were preparing for our conversation, uh, where you say this, and I'll just quote from your email, that you say, I have resigned all my administrative leadership at ABTS, although you remain obviously as a faculty member, you're still teaching there on Islam and Christian-Muslim relations, but my decision was the result of the dramatic Lebanon, the dramatic year that Lebanon went through in 2020, and my sense of going through a personal existential crisis with my country. And I since established a new initiative registered as Action Research Associates. And my purpose, together with three other colleagues, is to apply everything that I've learned in my theological journey and my work in dialogue and in peace building at a higher national level. And I'm currently working with politicians and activists from the 17th of October revolution. And my goal is to seek a pursuit of the truth that would lead to interpersonal and national reconciliation. And I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, it sounds, uh, <laughs> it sounds uh, very um, uh, like a big flame when I hear you reread it to me that way. Um, ambitious, ambitious is the word you're looking for. <laughs> yes. And, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I've Every uh, at every stage of uh, of the way in my uh, journey in serving uh, God, I have felt that He has always called me to uh, accomplish things that felt way over way over my head and uh, where uh, mm. um, and uh, somehow in my weakness uh, He has able He has been able to use me in ways that when I look back in retrospect. Uh, I would have never thought possible. And so uh, I have, since uh, last uh, fall, uh, felt increasingly um, um, I guess I mentioned the term helpless and the sense of helplessness, the sense of living in a country that was disintegrating, uh, that was falling apart and uh, feeling that uh, I too was going through a sort of existential crisis of, you know, um, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Um, uh, what is the meaning of what I am doing? Is anything that I'm doing anymore of any use of, or of any significance? And so I must say that I, I struggle, struggled a lot. I went through a very difficult time and i actually still am going through a very difficult time so in terms of personal prayer request i need a lot of prayer along with my family uh we need to make very important decisions all the time and it's not easy to let go of a branch that you've been sitting on for 19 years i uh, went mm -hmm. from uh from uh, studying 
obtained my PhD, uh, got to Lebanon, immediately started working with ABTS and did so for 19 years. And so I'm, I'm not the sort of person that moves easily from one job to another, mm -hmm. but I sense such a strong calling uh, that, uh, you know, that I still was not touching the essential problem that Lebanon has. And uh, uh, got a very strong sense that one of the key issues in Lebanon is our, is our bloody history. It's our, uh, uh, our history of violence. Uh, it's uh, the fact that we have uh, never come to terms with that history. Uh, we always push the problem under the carpet, and this might have to do with uh, an honor and shame uh, uh, culture, but also with uh, this uh, tribal system that is uh, drawn along sectarian lines, as I've explained earlier. And uh, um, so the the whole uh, concept of truth and reconciliation that has been uh, that has developed in South Africa in the, as well as other places later that have experienced extreme violence uh, came to mind not so much as a legal uh, system of tribunals but actually not as I also said tonight uh, with you, this idea of communal responsibility. And when, when you want to uh, embrace communal responsibility, it's not so much anymore a question of uh, making people accountable in front of a tribunal or making them pay or for, for their crimes. It's more a question of how do we read our history? Um, why do different groups in Lebanon behave the way that they do? Um, is there only one historical narrative about what really happened? What if each uh, community's narrative is the truth as far as they are concerned? And so I al almost want to use the word truths with an S and reconciliation. And the idea here is we uh, you know, in our schools, for instance, we don't teach history. We, we don't teach the last, no, <laughs> sorry. We don't teach the last 50 years of Lebanese history. So the history of mm -hmm. Lebanon, uh, our textbooks stop, uh, you know, shortly after the Second World War. So the last 70 years, in fact, we don't touch because we don't have a common narrative. But what we learned mm -hmm. from uh, people who uh, work in that sort of context is that uh, seeking a common narrative is perhaps not the solution. Uh, it's probably more uh, important to, uh, to, to bring out the multiple narratives, to recognize the multiple narratives and the legitimacy, and I use my word carefully, of each narrative mm -hmm. for each of its community owners. And then the process of learning and teaching history is not anymore a process of seeking to unify the narrative, but it's a process of uh, intentionally keeping the narrative's intention and using the hearing out of each other's narrative in, as a process of growing uh, the value of empathy 
in for for a population like Lebanon and using this methodology as a process of reconciliation. Now I know these are all very big words I've just used and uh, and very big concepts and how do they play out in a reality where there are weapons involved and there are uh, extremist religious ideologies as well as political ideologies and there are multiple generations that are deeply corrupt that seek to maintain themselves in power. But this is where I am in, in uh, the vision that uh, I feel God has given me and I don't know how I will get there but I have made the small steps of resigning from other things that were occupying my time uh, establishing a new organization uh, that is a research company uh, and uh, uh, making use of multiple networks that I've uh, uh, been able to develop over the last two decades among politicians, among activists, among faith leaders, and uh, uh, working uh, with uh, wonderful colleagues who uh, also have uh, shared this vision in order to uh, try and seek a solution uh, at the national level, uh, both political as well as uh, social reconciliation level, um, in a way that is inspired by the values of the kingdom and by Jesus' call for us to be peacemakers and for us to be reconcilers and uh, Paul says we have been given the ministry of reconciliation and it is true that we are to call people to reconciliation with God but if it is a reconciliation with God that does not lead to reconciliation between people then it is virtually meaningless and so we have been called into we have been reconciled with God and we are called to a ministry of reconciliation and through the process of interpersonal and social recon reconciliation, uh, uh, reflecting the image of God who gives himself up for uh, reconciliation and who is our model of self-givingness and, uh, 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 and affirming others uh, and uh, putting ourselves in other people's shoes and so on. So the Bible is very much our inspiration. Uh, the way of Christ is very much our inspiration. But I am moving in my own uh, journey uh, from a more direct uh, interfaith engagement or into a more social engagement uh, inspired, of course, by who I am. Uh, and at the same time, as you mentioned, continuing to teach uh, at the seminary and participating in the formation of uh, strategic leaders for the church in the region. It's all very big and scary, but... <laughs> it is. It sounds amazingly ambitious, but it is, I trust, a vision that God is giving you uh, and for which we must pray. So I've been talking to Dr. Martin Akkad in Beirut, in Lebanon, and I trust that all of us who have been listening to this podcast will spend some time praying as he has asked, uh, praying for Martin and his wife and his family uh, there in that country uh, in the midst of decisions that they need to take and, and a future which seems so uncertain. 
Pray also for the country of Lebanon itself in desperate need of, of God's mercy and grace at this time. And pray for this initiative of Action Research Associates that uh, Martin has been describing for us, that God will indeed enable that to bear fruit for the kingdom of God in which we are his salt and light. Thank you, Martin. Thank you so much. That's it for today. I'm so thankful that God is at work raising up leaders like Martin, who disciple not only believers within their context, but around the world as well. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless.